If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. This July marks the 75th anniversary of Britain's National Health Service, which, according to historian Andrew Seaton, has come to occupy a unique place in British life in the decades since its founding in 1948. Andrew's new book, Our NHS, charts the divided reaction to the health service's creation and explores the historical currents that have seen it survive both economic and political turbulence. Matt Elton caught up with him to find out more. We should start, I suppose, by first of all, explaining to people maybe from outside the UK or maybe who might not know, what do we mean by the NHS and what kind of healthcare service is it? Well, hi, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So the NHS stands for the National Health Service. Um, This is a a universal healthcare service that was uh, established uh, across the UK uh, in 1948. Um, And it offers... uh, comprehensive healthcare from um, local doctor's appointments to hospital procedures, uh, free at the point of use. So, you know, you can go to your doctor or hospital and get access to healthcare without charge. And there's no personal insurance requirement, as in many, many other countries. And as your new book explores, the NHS has come to occupy what you argue is quite a unique position in Britain and Britain's sort of cultural psyche. And we'll get on some of those ideas in a bit. We should start, though, by rewinding and saying, what 
What was the healthcare service or provision like in Britain before the NHS came along? Mm. I mean, the, th- the, the first point to make is that there was healthcare before the NHS came in in 1948. And, and, and sometimes we, we think that, you know, there was a kind of barren wasteland before 1948. And then the NHS came along and, and boom, you know, healthcare was invented. But that's not true. There was a healthcare system before 1948. And it existed more, though, as a mix of government, voluntary and private organized and funded healthcare services. So it was much more pluralistic. Um, So you had uh, the biggest sort of degree of state involvement would be through um, the national insurance system, which was established uh, under the Liberals uh, in the Edwardian period. And that provided uh, access to local general practitioners um, if you earned under a certain amount Um, You paid in a contribution as well as your employer did uh, and the government did to a kind of central fund that gave you access basically to local GPs. And this was known as being on the panel, panel doctors. Um, But one of the problems with that system, just that well, that national insurance system, just to take that as as an example of of the pre-NHS healthcare system, is that it didn't cover... Uh, the insured person's dependents. So if you were, most workers were men, uh, if your dependents would be understood as your wife or your children, um, they wouldn't get access to general practitioner services under the national insurance system. And therefore, you know, they had to pay out of pocket. um, And a lot of health inequalities came out Uh, of that lack of access. And those kinds of gaps were the sorts of things that health reformers criticised the pre-NHS healthcare system for. And what kind of, I suppose, friction or resistance or response did people who were proposing this new system meet when they first started doing that? So the first proposals for you know, a national health service, it had various names, arrive in the Edwardian period, um, around the time that national um, health insurance is, is brought in. But they really gather pace in the, after the First World War during the 1920s and the 1930s. You know, this is a, a period of high unemployment. Uh, it's a period of great political instability. Um, and people start to ask questions about whether the uh, healthcare system is, is, is up to scratch. There is, um, it, you know, it should be said that the, the demands and the arguments for a health, a, a, a reformed universal healthcare system range across the political spectrum from the left to the centre to the right. Um, and um, the, but many of these demands um, sort of splintered on the degree of the government's in involvement and the government's intervention. And depending on where you sat in the political spectrum, that's where your opposition or your support would would lay for these kinds of proposals. So a really interesting uh, moment for this is, is during the Second World War, when um, there's a lot of debate about what Britain will look like once the war ends. Um, you know, key documents in this kind of debate is the publication of the Beveridge Report, as it's known, in, in 1942, which kind of proposed this full-scale universal welfare state uh, from cradle to grave, as, as the saying goes. And 
actually, when you look at opinion polling, and this is one of the things that I try and do in the book, uh, and and look at people's reactions, what you see is actually fairly mixed opinions. You see a, a large degree of support for the government coming in and coordinating and, and funding healthcare. But you also see a lot of either ambivalence or opposition. And that opposition from the public, again, came down to what they thought about the state. Uh, this fear that greater state involvement would lead to a more impersonal and, and bureaucratic system of healthcare. Were there any sort of key specific benefits or advantages that proponents could point to that helped this this new system become accepted, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that the that proponents, particularly on the left, would point to is is really the advantages of government coordination that that would bring. So um, in the interwar period, uh, for example, a thing that would often be invoked by people on the medical left would be health centres. So instead of having local doctors, um, you know, working in often their own homes or converted shop fronts, they would be brought together in these publicly funded modern premises where you would have a nurse and a dentist and a public health official and so on under one roof. So, and, you know, there were um, prototypes of that kind of model in the UK, in Finsbury, in Peckham, um, these kind of prototypes of what a, a future health system might look like, but then also abroad, including the Soviet Union um, with its polyclinics. So there were these kind of this, these these very specific examples that they could point to. Another one would be um, what was called the Emergency Medical Service, which was set up during the Second World War as part of preparations for the predicted casualties that would be caused by aerial bombing. Um, So this was set up very quickly at the start of the Second World War uh, as a way of preparing the hospital service for what was expected to be hundreds of thousands of deaths caused, caused by German bombing. And what this involved was the government coming in and systematizing and coordinating the health system. And reformers you know, pointed to that that system, the emergency medical service, as showing the advantages of government coordination. So there were these kind of real world examples that they could point to. But then there was also uh, a degree of which there wasn't key uh, real life examples. And they had to do work to kind of um, describe what those might look like to the public. And were there key political figures who helped make these ideas a reality? Yeah, so, um, you know, the the one that we all know about is uh, Aniron Bevan, um, the charismatic uh, Welsh socialist who rose from the the mines of of South Wales to become Minister of Health and Housing in Clement Attlee's Labour government after the Second World War, who really... um, stewarded the legislation for the NHS and brought it over the line in the teeth of opposition from from the medical profession but there were there were a, a wider cast of of uh, political figures activists reformers um, who also argued for an NHS so one person I talk about, um, in in the book is uh, another MP, a Labour MP called Edith Summerskill, who was a who was a doctor turned politician, very very interested in in women's health, children's health, um, 
you know, the, the kind of poverty that was caused by depression and unemployment during the interwar period and the effect that that had on women and children. And, you know, she brought the argument for an NHS to the airwaves on the BBC, uh, in newspapers and magazines, really promoting this. So there were a wider cast of figures beyond Bevan, as important as he was to the establishment of the NHS. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. One of the points you make in your book is that historians have sometimes painted a picture of this as being a service that was immediately and widely accepted upon its inception. But actually, you argue the real picture is a bit more complicated than that. Can you talk us through through that side of things? That's right, yeah. And it's really an idea of the NHS that we have now. We live, you know, almost in in, in peak uh, celebration of the NHS, you know, the, the, the celebration of the birthdays, the fact it's on our 50 pence pieces, it's on our stamps. There are, you know, on the 75th anniversary, on the 5th of July, there'll be a ceremony at Westminster Abbey and so on and so forth. And it's very easy for us to think that this was always the case and that people immediately celebrated this thing when it was brought into being on the 5th of July, 1948. But in fact, that's not the case. You know, I mentioned the opinion polls during the Second World War and afterwards, which showed this real mix of opinion about um, what, this thing would look like, how it would work. Um, you know, and that continued after 1948 as well. Um, so one thing that I kind of pick up on the book um, is a, uh, a group of doctors uh, called the Fellowship for Freedom in Medicine, uh, who were this kind of conservative group of, of doctors led by the famous uh, royal physician, uh, Lord Horder, who had quite a few members uh, both within the medical profession and outside of it, and they attracted a degree of public support for their claims that the NHS was this statist bureaucratic thing that, in their view, was going to bankrupt the nation and lead it lead Britain to become a dictatorship. Um, 
uh, was going to push it down that road. So, you know, those kinds of uh, groups were active in in pretty quickly after the NHS came in. So, you know, the depth of feeling and support that it exists today for the NHS, it just wasn't there um, to quite the same extent at that moment of inception. Were there cultural or, I suppose, social approaches or techniques that were used to help the public come to accept this new system, I suppose? Absolutely. And it's it's an interesting mix between um, the administration of the NHS and it as a practical reality in giving healthcare to people, widening that access, letting people access healthcare without charge, and then also this kind of social and cultural dimension. So without doubt, a lot of support for the NHS did come about the fact that healthcare became available for many people who didn't have access to it in the interwar period. It did change lives. But another part of it is certainly cultural. And this is something I try and pick up on in the book. You know, I mentioned that when it came in, uh, these proposals and these plans for a national health service were understood through the lens of state medicine, often capitalised, capital S, capital M, um, as a kind of threat. And the Labour government, when it came in, put just as much interest in promoting the NHS and tackling those understandings about what this healthcare system would be as they did in, you know, organising where doctors should be and getting the funding in place and so on and so forth. So posters, radio broadcasts, films, uh, display sets that were sent around to factories, these kinds of things. There was this huge uh, public relations effort, in a way, to sell the NHS and to change understandings of it away from state medicine and all the critical associations that came with that term to this kind of more humanistic, futuristic idea of a national health service that eventually gained a lot of purchase among the public and only built over time. It's it's so interesting that the government felt that it needed, and that was proved to be the case, that they needed to use cultural tools to make this accepted by society. Are there any specific examples that you can point to that really help illustrate that as a technique? Yeah, so one would be um, a, uh, a film um, called um, Your Very Good Health, um, which um, is about 20 minutes long, something like that. And it's, and it's this, this film that kind of follows this uh, imaginary, fictionary, f- fictional family uh, who are working class. Um, and uh, I think if I remember the plot right, the mother breaks, um, breaks her ankle, I think. And it, the film kind of moves to, it's set just before the NHS comes in and it moves to this kind of imaginary future after the NHS when it comes in. And it shows how she's cared for, how there's a, a health assistant that comes into the home, how her husband is still able to continue working, how the children are still able to go to school. And then at the end of the film, it goes back to the reality of healthcare before the NHS, where Uh, The husband has to take time off work um, to look after the wife. And, you know, horror beyond horror, the children cannot spend Christmas with their parents. They have to be kind of farmed out to one of their relatives. So this is a kind of example of how there's this kind of cultural packaging of the NHS as this thing that is humanistic. It supports families. It supports working class families in particular. 
and it is you know a in through the lens of these kinds of cultural products it is this kind of vast improvement on the healthcare um arrangements that existed before 1948 and there were lots of these kinds of um productions in the air in the late 1940s when it came in one of the strange things about this is we obviously know that the nhs still exists today and you make the point in the book that we need to foreground the importance of people who actively helped to make it still continue mm. one of the sort of the wider forces that you point to is the fact that the nhs was able to be adaptable and to modernize throughout the coming decades throughout the 50s and the 60s in a way that perhaps other welfare organizations or institutions weren't why was that the case and why do you think it was able to adapt in a way that other parts of the state didn't yeah i mean one of the things when writing the book that i tried to keep at the back of my mind is is where does the nhs fit within this broader ecosystem of other parts of the welfare state from new towns to mass council housing um, to child benefit, all these kinds of things that were either extended or brought in after the Second World War. And then also this vast uh, state-run infrastructure, you know, the nationalisation of the coal mines, the railways, this kind of stuff. And, you know, why is it that the NHS is this thing that not only survived uh, when so many uh, of those other things that I just mentioned did not survive the 1980s, they became privatised or fell away, um, and you know expanded its its population its reputation and one of the reasons that, that one of the sort of explanations that I found um, it, when looking at particularly the post-war decades so we're talking about the 1950s the 1960s the 1970s is that there was this real effort to adapt the NHS to the quite dramatic social changes that were going on in that period so we're talking about greater affluence, rising living standards, softening class divides, changing gender relations, attitudes to sex, greater ethnic and racial diversity. And there's this kind of low-level adaptations that the NHS is, is, is taking to those kinds of social changes. So let's just take one, for example, um, you know, changing gender relations in the post-war period, it becomes a lot more acceptable, for example, for men to attend and want to attend the birth of their children in hospitals. Whereas in the 1930s, you know, ideas of masculinity were much less favourable to that. Men would rather be in the pub than at the birth of their child. And what you see in the 1960s is you gradually start seeing the NHS adapting to those changing ideas of what masculinity is and allowing men to attend the birth of their children. And, you know, that's one example of, of, of how the NHS expands when other parts of the welfare state and other public industries instead kind of acquired this reputation as being inflexible, bureaucratic, and therefore very easily denigrated by their critics. And that's not to say that this adaptability and this reflexivity of the NHS was, you know, perfect or flawless and, you know, social divides didn't continue to exist within the NHS. They very much did. But comparatively, I think there is this degree of reflexivity to the NHS, which helped it embed itself and, and mature in those in those crucial early decades. Do we have a sense of why it was able to be flexible? Was it because of good leadership? Was it was because this was a relatively new institution? Yeah, I, I, one of the things that I try and point to 
in the book is is how that some of this um, reflexivity and these kind of low level reforms, like uh, you know, I mentioned the men attending the birth of their children, but another one would be uh, vis- you know expanding visiting hours in in hospitals. Some of this is coming from within the NHS, but then also some of this is coming from outside of the NHS by groups that are supportive of. The NHS's principles. And this is where, you know, the importance of philanthropy and charitable organisations is important. So, you know, you can point to groups such as the Nuffield Trust or the King's Fund, these kinds of charities that are still around today in the field of healthcare. Other examples would be um, uh, leagues of friends, again, very common in, in hospitals. Now, volunteers who, who give their time to help hospitals, you know, they raised money for things like curtains around beds, which gave privacy to, hosp- to patients in hospitals when the government, you know, wasn't really giving that much money to the NHS. That's a very important context to remember about the post-war period. So this kind of reflexivity, I argue, is coming from both within and outside of the NHS, again, was not a perfect process, but it certainly helped adapt the service to some of the challenges that it, that it faced. One of the other ideas we should talk about is that of welfare nationalism, which I have mm. to confess I hadn't really heard much about before I read your book. Can you just talk us through what, what you mean by that and why that's an important aspect of this story as we head into the 70s? Yeah, so welfare nationalism is is a is a term that I was working with a few years ago, and, and then I noticed that it sort of popped up in in discussions of um, welfare services in Scandinavia, uh, particularly uh, in relation to um, to you know asylum seekers and immigrants seeking uh, welfare services in Scandinavia. And I decided to use welfare nationalism in in my book to really try and capture this sense of popular feeling around the NHS today. The reason why I call it welfare nationalism and how I define it is I define it as a belief in welfare services as saying something essential about the nation. So in other words, the way that welfare services are coded with national values so, you know, in Britain, British people uh, very often in, in opinion polls uh, in, in recent years will say that the NHS is the thing that makes them most proud to be British ahead of the royal family, the armed forces, other examples that you could point to. The BBC, I'm afraid to say to, to this podcast, um, it, 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 it trumps you. Um, it, and there is this kind of nationalism around it. People think that they, uh, you know, are kind of uniquely blessed with the NHS. And and to some extent, you know, you often see this with politicians, even politicians um, like, you know, Tony Blair, who sort of present themselves as these very kind of professional, uh, even kind of neutral centrist, centrist figures. They will say things if you look at their speeches, like, you know, if you go abroad, um, they, they will check your wallet before they check your pulse. Now, of course, that's not True, there is healthcare in France, there is healthcare in Germany and Japan and the, even the United States. It just works differently. And there is this kind of, um, I don't want to say parochialism, but there's a particular way that, that, the, that the NHS is thought about in this country where um, it's seen to be this kind of unique thing. And that creates particular uh, consequences. One is to give the NHS support as this British British institution, as soon as you start coding something as a national institution, as a national treasure, it 
takes on a kind of prominence in public life, which gives it more durability. You know, this just didn't exist with council housing. You know, the idea of our NHS, there is no our council housing, right? So it gives it kind of durability. The other kind of darker side of this, though, is that welfare nationalism can also be used against marginalised groups within society. And one of the things that I talk about in the book in particular is in the post-war decades when um, decolonization is is, un- is undergoing and, and um, immigrants arrive from the Commonwealth, the idea of um, the NHS being a British institution for British people raises questions both about the workers, of which there were very many in the NHS who were from overseas, and then also the patients that it treated. So it could be welfare nationalism could be this thing that gave resilience to the NHS, but also be weaponized against marginalized groups in society. And so that that linking of the NHS is in some sense being British caused problems uh, in the 70s. You, you talk specifically about um, Enoch Powell, who I hadn't realised had thoughts about this element of things. Can you talk through what happened there and if that's representative of the politics of that era? Well, Enoch Powell is an absolutely fascinating figure to think through the history of the NHS with. He was Minister of Health um, in the 1960s. He is uh, widely regarded today um, and even hailed in, in conservative circles as being a proponent and early advocate of free market neoliberal policies, and yet was uh, an arch planner when he was the head of um, at, at the Ministry of Health, overseeing, for example, the 1962 hospital plan, which um, was the first systematic attempt in the NHS to kind of build hospitals and, and give substantial government funding towards that. So he's interested in that respect, but he's also, of course, uh, most known for his comments about immigration uh, in 1968, what has been uh, widely known as the Rivers of Blood speech, where he described uh, the, um, the, the, uh, the, the extent of immigration into the UK from the Commonwealth as something that would cause racial tension and even a, a race war in the UK. And in, if you look at that speech, welfare is very, very prominent in that speech. He uses welfare as a way of getting his point across that um, about the, the the supposed dangers of immigration into the UK. So, you know, there are passages in it where he says, you know, that the average British person has been robbed of a council house. They've been, their wives cannot get places in, in maternity hospitals because of immigrants from Jamaica or Nigeria, whatever it might be. So that is a very, very good example of how the welfare nationalism that is starting to kind of coalesce around the NHS by the 60s, by the 70s, is being deployed for a kind of conservative anti-immigration politics at that, at that time. It's also interesting because, as you mentioned, he was an early proponent of neoliberalism. There might be people who aren't entirely sure what we mean here when we talk about neoliberalism. Can you just sort of really briefly define what's quite a complicated political term, but also the ways in which it started to creep into how we should see the NHS as we start going into the 1980s? Mm. So you're right. Neoliberalism, of course, is a a very uh, contested term. Not everyone agrees with it. I use it because I think it's a useful way of understanding the politics of the late 20th century. 
Neoliberalism in in broad terms is a belief in the values of free markets to um, better society and also a particular view about individualism um, within society as opposed to the other term I use in, in the book, which is social democracy, which is a belief in the state to improve society and a belief in communalism and community as the best way of organizing society. Now, neoliberalism is a very uh, interesting to think, thing to think with with the NHS. Um, initially, in the once you get into the kind of 1960s, you start seeing arguments among free market neoliberal think tanks, intellectuals, um, parts of the medical profession that the NHS is a failure, that it's not bringing in enough money to treat uh, to treat uh, patients adequately and instead Britain should shift to a system of private health insurance that would enable in their view more money to come into the system and greater choice um, and individual preferences could be catered to so that's a kind of argument that you see in the 60s and the 70s now when Margaret Thatcher comes into power in 1979 she was uh, very much um, au fait with those arguments familiar with them uh, a member of groups in the Conservative Party where these kinds of proposals are very regularly put forward and discussed and when she first came into power she sets up a working party in the Department of Health and Social Security to explore whether it was feasible to shift uh, the UK to a private health insurance model. It eventually, that does, as we know, does not transpire due to the kind of size and scale of the NHS, the difficulties of removing it, instability within the private health insurance market, and then also this cultural dimension, the support that has been built up around the NHS. Neoliberalism after that kind of takes on a different in my view, it retreats to a more kind of modest stance where instead of replacing the NHS or marginalising it to the point where it becomes irrelevant, it shifts to changing the internal structures of the NHS, make, bringing in things like an internal market uh, in the early 1990s, outsourcing what in-house uh, work such as cleaning work or catering work to private companies. Uh, or bringing in managers to uh, manage the NHS uh, on private sector um, values. So it, there's a kind of shift there in terms of market-friendly neoliberal approaches to the NHS across the late 20th century. But it's your view that Thatcher's sort of seriousness about privatising the NHS has been underplayed by other historians? Is Is that fair to say? That's right. I mean, a famous quote that's often um, remembered about Thatcher with the NHS is that, you know, she she at the Conservative Party conference uh, in the early 1980s, she gets on stage and, and says that the NHS is safe with us. Um, a kind of reassurance that the NHS uh, was still going to be uh, in existence under her government. Now, um that kind of doubt, that kind of obscures the much longer history that I've just described of neoliberal thinking around exactly that, replacing the NHS with a system of private health insurance, of which Margaret Thatcher herself and key members of her government and important groups within the Conservative Party 
engaged with and and discussed. So um, there was the the inability to get rid of the NHS was not for a lack of interest uh, on behalf of Margaret Thatcher or her government or her supporters. It was because that plan was defeated by the NHS itself and its administrative dimensions there the inability of the of the private health insurance market to take on the role that these kind of neoliberal uh, thinkers and politicians imagined for it and then also the supporters of the NHS to um defeat that kind of rival plan for the NHS so one of the things you see in the 1980s that I talk about is a kind of coding of free market medicine if you want to call it that as an american thing as a foreign Thing, as opposed to the British way of the NHS. That, you know, when you often in this country, when we talk about uh, healthcare overseas, our mind immediately goes to the US. It doesn't go to France. It doesn't go to Germany. It doesn't go to Japan. It goes to the US. That is a thing that comes about really in the 1970s, in the 1980s, and it's put on the table by the supporters of the NHS. And it's very, very effective at framing debate about what alternatives to the NHS are. So again, you see there how the NHS had to be kind of actively supported by its by its supporters. And was it during this period of active support and this period of this coding that you've mentioned that the status of the NHS as becoming seen by many people in Britain as beloved cultural institution, not by everyone, but by many people, really was cemented and firmed up. Absolutely. And it's an interesting curiosity that, that you know, the, the popular support for the NHS really does start to soar once you get out the other side of the 1970s. And therefore, you know, it is forged or at least uh, coalesced in that atmosphere of crisis, if you will, around uh, what's going to happen to the NHS under the Thatcher government and into the 1990s under the major government. We see restrictions on NHS funding in those years. We see uh, marketization policies that I've described with outsourcing and internal markets and so on. And what you see is uh, the emergence of this atmosphere of crisis that the NHS is is going to die or even that it has died by trade unions, by figures on the left and and in, in the media, in the newspapers. But what you see is out of that, you see kind of new cultural traditions and new forms of attachment emerge. So one that I talk about at the end of the book is the emergence of birthdays the nhs's birthday as a kind of mass celebration this comes about on a on a popular scale in the 1980s because of the from the trade unions they use it as a way of drawing attention to the nhs at this purported moment of crisis and then it just goes stratospheric when you get into the late 1990s in the new labor era where they kind of make it official and they put the nhs on 50 pence coins and the stamps and they do this you know, celebrations in Buckingham Palace and so on on the NHS's birthday for its 50th anniversary in 1998. So you see there how the prominence of the NHS in public life has escalated out of a 1980s cultural tradition forged in an atmosphere of crisis. Is it fair to say that the privatisation process continued under New Labour, that it wasn't just a Conservative initiative? 
One of the things that I try and do in the book is I try and make a distinction between privatization and marketization. And I think it's important to do because privatization is a word that, again, in that 1980s context comes about, but it's very slippery. At first, it refers to the outsourcing of, of things like cleaning work outside of the NHS. By the time you get to the 1990s, it refers to things like internal markets or the use of private capital to build hospitals. Uh, what was known as the Private Finance Initiative, or PFI. So privatization is a kind of moving target. The way that I define it is in a, in a kind of hopefully a simple way, which is the transference in more or less a kind of completed way of resources from the public sector to the private sector. So kind of classic examples of this would be the privatization, say, of British Telecoms, BT, in the 1980s, right? A public industry that's moved into private hands. The NHS is not privatized in that way, but it is marketized. And marketization means um, a kind of more modest policy in some way of, of, of reforming an institution from within to make it more... Uh, market friendly. Now, to your point about new labour, new labour do very much pick up on the marketization emphasis of their conservative predecessors in the 1980s and for much of the 1990s. So I mentioned the private finance initiative a moment ago. That was actually a conservative policy that came about in the early 1990s under uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nigel Lawson. And um, it... Um, lays dormant for a few years. And then when new Labour come in, they pick it up and they escalate it. And then it, it leads to, you know, the largest building wave in the history of the NHS in the 2000s. M- many of our hospitals in the UK are built through, or parts of those hospitals are built through PFI. So there is this commitment to uh, many of the marketization policies. But I, I'm very careful in the book to say that it's not the same thing. There is, There are many ways that New Labour's approach to the NHS is very, very different to their Conservative predecessors. For a start, funding, it goes up to unprecedented levels under New Labour. Um, the only time that the NHS reaches a, comp- a comparative level of funding to many of its peers in the industrialised world is under New Labour. Staff levels go up, public satisfaction go up. But also, as I mentioned with the birthdays, there's this kind of cultural amplification of the place of the NHS in public life that New Labour radically indulge in. They they are welfare nationalists in their approach to the NHS in a way that Margaret Thatcher, for example, simply wasn't. She used private health care. She had no bones about, you know, having a go at her ministers if they used the NHS instead of Bupa or private care, for example. You know, that is night and day between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and, and Margaret Thatcher. So that yes, there are many ways that uh, New Labour do continue the marketization of of their conservative predecessors, but it's way way too simplistic to say that it's the same, or in my view that it isn't social democratic the way that New Labour are going about it. Finally, what does charting this story of the NHS as we mark its seventy fifth anniversary tell us about the the wider political, social, cultural currents of Britain over the past seven decades? Yeah, that's that's a big question. I, I think one of the things that I'm that I'm interested in is um, what happened to social democracy. That's the kind of story I'm trying to tell through the NHS, right? What happened to 
that political project and that set of political values that really lay behind the establishment of the NHS. So we're talking about the state being a force for good in society. We're talking about a view that, um, you know, uh, that uh, the poorest in society should be helped, that there was a, that communalism in society was important. I'm interested in what happened to that through the NHS. What I kind of argue is that, um, that that, type of politics more or less and largely uh, continues to exist through the NHS as an institution. Um, the balance of funding, health funding, is still overwhelmingly spent in healthcare through the NHS. The inroads that private companies have made are often a lot less than we might think through the media or so on. Um, and there is a belief in this institution in wider society and even the communal values um, that it represents. But many other parts of that social democratic project fell away, right? So, you know, the the clearest example in welfare would be council housing, uh, which was privatised in the 1980s. We we are living in in a a kind of housing crisis uh, in many ways in the UK, um, which, you know, the privatisation of council housing contributed to. And that led to Britain to have some quite uneven health outcomes. So health is not just the product of a health service. As we know, health is also shaped by good housing, good diet, stable employment, mental health, all of these things, right? And those things that, those parts of the welfare state or the social democratic project that were, sure, never really lived up to what they could have, but they were certainly there to help with that. Many of those planks fell away after the 1980s. So, you know, social democracy is not a completely dead, devoid, bankrupt political project, as as we may think it is. It does live on through the NHS, but many other parts of that project did fall away. So what we're left with is quite a kind of fragmented uneven political landscape, I think, as we as as we move through the beginning of the, the, the 21st century. That was Andrew Seaton. Andrew's book, Our NHS, A History of Britain's Best-Loved Institution, is out now, published by Yale University Press. Andrew will also be tackling some listener questions about the history of the National Health Service in another episode of the podcast later in July, so do look out for that. And if you want to read a feature by Andrew on the NHS that he wrote for BBC History magazine, you can find that on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 